Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, the Consumer Electronics Show took over the Vegas Strip. Over 4,500 companies showed off their latest gadgets at CES 2020. And that lineup included everything from high-tech food to folding computers. We caught up with a number of executives making big announcements at CES. First, we spoke with Cristiano Amen. He's the president of Qualcomm, which used the occasion to unveil its first chips and software for fully autonomous vehicles. In this product space, Qualcomm has been a bit behind the curve compared with its rivals. We began by asking him to respond to criticism that Qualcomm was coming into self-driving too late. We're very excited, I think, to expand, you know, our, our automotive offering, getting into autonomous. And the reason I'll answer your question is, we, we believe that the cars are going to have to process so much data. I mean, we require so much processing capabilities. Pretty much uh, it, it's going to require a completely different equation about power. And coming from the cell phone industry, we actually have the ability to do chips. They're very efficient from a power standpoint. You cannot run a data center out of the trunk of your car. And I think that's where the real opportunity is for Qualcomm. We unveil today uh, our solutions from both uh, all the way to level one to level four plus, which is autonomy. But more important, we believe the real commercial opportunity will be to add autonomy to every car as a convenient feature with the driver behind the wheel, much much like you have cruise control. And I think that's the real opportunity that Qualcomm has to scale this. And we're also pleased to announce the expansion of our relationship with General Motors now to include autonomy as well. So very happy about that. It's a significant milestone for the Qualcomm automotive business here at CES. So when we talk about, uh, Cristiano, uh, sort of the prospects here and the competition in this space, I mean, a couple of months ago, I think back in November, Intel talked about its acquisition of Mobileye and how it was allowing it to sort of scale up uh, at a pace that it said uh, was faster than some of its competitors. Is the race here, is this going to be about what you do in Qualcomm internally, or do you start looking at M&A and potentially buying some of the smaller players out there? Look, that's a great question. We, we've been building 
in our automotive business uh, organically. And I think uh, we got to naturally to connectivity to become the number one in both uh, telematics and, and connecting the car to the other cars with seller V2X. Then we went to the digital cockpit transformation and we became now number one with 19 cust uh, OEMs engaged. And I think we look at autonomy as just a natural extension of our computing you know, capabilities becoming more powerful for battery-powered devices. That's what you see in phones, and we got into PCs. Naturally, that will be for the car as well. And you know, it, we could see further acquisitions down the road, but probably smaller. Mm. We feel pretty good about what we've done so far uh, to be able to build an ADAS platform with uh, organic uh, efforts. Okay, obviously there's going to be a lot of flashy things shown at CES that would make you think that all of this is available tomorrow. When it comes to fully autonomous vehicles, though, we're not there yet. When is Qualcomm betting that we will actually get fully autonomous vehicles? Is this a 2021, 2022, 2030 event? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's what the difference is. Why we have a platform that we can do full autonomy, we're really focused on what we call level two plus and level three, which allow you to actually get scale and make this really a commercial good proposition for us and for automakers. And the platform we unveiled today, we expect to see cars in the road by 2023, uh, with uh, what we call level two plus or level three, which allow you to have the full capabilities of an autonomous driving, but with the driver behind the wheel, more like a convenient feature. That's what we think the scale is going to be, and we're going to see that becoming a commercial reality. All right. Uh, well, with, with regard to that commercial reality, Cristiano, we're talking about uh, the competition between companies here, but we know uh, that China has really gone full force with their AI and autonomous technology here, and it's sort of a standardized program. They have the government sort of orchestrating or at least sort of overseeing a lot of this. We don't necessarily have that here in the U.S. Do you think that could be an impediment? Look, we have been, you know, competing in the global marketplace uh, for a while now across a number of different segments. We expect that to be true on AI and be true uh, in automotive. But on AI alone, because we have a leadership in low power processing uh, versus you know, the power hungry data centers, even cooperation with some of the China cloud companies, something we're seeing right now, interest from Qualcomm products. And uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we have to keep the technology treadmill moving. We have to move faster. That's been the history of success of the United States tech companies. And I think it's gonna be no different going forward. Then we caught up with the team rolling out the mobile-first, short-form streaming service with $1 billion behind it. Quibi is the vision of former Walt Disney Studio chairman and DreamWorks animation founder Jeffrey Katzenberg. Former Hewlett-Packard CEO Meg Whitman is serving as CEO. They both joined us, and we began by asking how Quibi planned to stand out in an already crowded content space. Well, and let me give you a little perspective about why we're at CES, which is this is the place to launch new technology. <coughs> and interestingly, in Hollywood, you know, you go back through the history, every evolution of technology enabled a whole new way for storytellers to tell their stories. So what we talked about today was a new technology platform, which is part of our differentiation versus the other streaming services, that will allow mobile viewing to be extraordinary and enable creators to tell stories in a whole new way for the mobile phone. 
And just a couple of other things. We think that people will be on Quibi during the day, 7 in the morning till 7 at night, on-the-go viewing, where they have a chance to watch very fantastic Hollywood-quality content, but in those short bites. And we've, we, as I said, we introduced a technology today that, that is full-screen video, landscape to portrait, that allows you to see content in ways you've never seen before. And, of course, you've just closed a second round of funding as well, $400 million that will carry you through the spring launch in April and beyond. Um, Jeffrey, I want to get more on the details here because 175 new original shows, 8,600 episodes of Quick Bite content. As Romain said, this is a crowded field. Who exactly are you targeting here with this content, and how do you convince them to pay another $4.99 on top of their Netflix subscription, their HBO Go, and their Disney Plus? So all good questions. So I, I think a couple of different uh, answers there for you, which is one, our, our content is uh, quite unique, very differentiated from anything that anybody is making today. As Meg said, um, we're relying on this incredible new technology. I hope you guys have a demo there that you can share with the audience. It is really quite revolutionary in terms of the quality of what we can uh, deliver. And then, you know, yes, there's a tremendous volume of content because people want quality, but they also want quantity. We will publish three hours of original content every single day on Quibi. That's 35% more than a broadcast network uh, shows in prime time. The other thing which I think is important to actually both questions that you you all you both were talking about is, is that um, we're not competing for the television set. All of the things that are going on today around OTT and streaming are all focused on what people are doing in front of their TV. Less than 10% of the viewing of Netflix, HBO, Disney Plus, any of them are actually on a telephone. And we are only on a telephone, and so we are highly differentiated, and our use case is quite different. Now, are we competing for the same dollars? The answer is yes, we are. But we think we're offering people something that's new, exciting, um, and, and unlike anything that they've seen before. And our, our bet is, is that um, you know, it will be highly appealing and, as I said, unique. Oh, okay. Um, so can you talk a little bit, though, about uh, the cost, I guess, to sort of uh, get up to speed or, I guess, uh, just to get that content out there? Obviously, we mentioned the fundraising uh, that you've had so far. Uh, we mentioned the $400 million. But you like take a, a company like Netflix, which I know may, may not be a direct competitor, but you're talking about a company that's spending $15 billion per year on their own content. Uh, and I'm wondering, in that context, uh, how does the amount of money you've raised so far sort of get you the sort of, uh, I guess, presence that some of those other companies already have? Sure. Well, here's something I would point out. So we would be the first streaming service that will launch without a library because you can't just take an hour-long television show and chop it up into six 10-minute segments. Everything is created new for Quibi because the platform is new and, and the viewing experience is completely different. And we think with 175 shows, 8,600 episodes, as you mentioned earlier, it's a unique content strategy and there's a lot of content. And so we think our, you know, we've, um, as you know, had a fundraise before this one, and th this fundraise will carry us right through the middle of 2021. So we're well-funded, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how we, how we start off. But we feel great about the amount of content that we're creating for this device in this quick bite, on-the-go viewing kind of format. Yeah, but content isn't cheap at all, Meg. And um, as Romain makes clear, Netflix is paying a lot for that. You'll be paying all production costs, and I believe you don't retain the rights indefinitely as well. So can you walk us through the path to profitability? 
Yeah, so listen, we, we created a business plan that investors underwrote with a clear path to profitability. You know, Jeffrey and I both run public companies. We actually know a very simple fact that revenue ultimately <laughs> needs to be more than costs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have a very clear path to profitability, which is shorter than most of these uh, you know, streaming services have released. And, uh, and, and investors underwrote that. And yes, you're right, we pay the cost of production plus 20%. We license it in its short form to Quibi for seven years. And then the talent actually owns their own IP, which is a big differentiator for us, which explains why we have everyone in Hollywood wanting to make content for us. But we're happy to have that profit pool be delivered to the creators, and we will live on the platform profit pool of advertising and subscription revenue. So how do you balance this out? I mean, you're obviously getting a lot of big names. Uh, we were looking through some of the celebrities that have already uh, uh, signed up to yeah. participate in this. But then you compare that to something like TikTok, which has become a phenomenon with people who no one knows, no, no one knows, but they're able to sort of generate <laughs> yeah. a ton of uh, entertaining content, entertaining to some people. Uh, so how do you sort of balance this out between paying for these uh, big celebrities versus these unknowns? Yeah, I, I think these are really quite different things. I mean, listen, there's amazing stuff being created on TikTok. As you know, it's all user-generated content. Um, we look at the world of uh, YouTube and Facebook Watch and ITV and all of these things that have uh, IGTV that have been created. And we admire the work that's been done there, but it's not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And what I, the way I would frame it for you is, is that um, if you look at the uh, investment in the content itself, it's in dollars, if not hundreds, maybe in some cases a few thousand dollars a minute. We're making content at $100,000 a minute. Mm -hmm. And you cannot compare you know, $100,000 in the hands of Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro and in, you know, some young entrepreneurial influencer who's spending $400 a minute in it. It's not that it's better or, or worse, it's just different. Sure. And we believe that different is meaningful and that people will actually respond to it. Now, listen, it's all new. You've never seen it before. No one had ever seen our tech before today. I think people are impressed with it. I know our filmmakers in Hollywood have been blown away by it. Right. And they are the ones who've embraced it and now are using those tools to tell great stories. Um, again, I hope you have some clips that you're able to share with the audience today in it. It's, it's amazing and it's unlike anything you've seen before. Now the next thing that we have to show you is the content. Yeah. And if the content is great and it is differentiated, our bet is people will pay for it. I guess my, my last question, and it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, Jeff, is how do you beat real life? Uh, Carlos Ghosn <laughs> escaping Japan in a big black box, uh, the president being the president. I mean, scripted content almost can't compete with what we're seeing in real life. <laughs> well, you know, I've spent my life as a storyteller, and there's always been big real news going on in the world in it, and somehow or another we, uh, we do manage to give people an opportunity maybe to escape from yeah. some of that stuff is not so bad. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Delta used CES to highlight its big push forward in technology. The airline is creating its own version of a digital concierge to tie customers more tightly to the carrier for travel needs ranging from navigating traffic to booking a hotel. The CEO, Ed Bastian, came on to talk about this new digital push. We started by asking him why he thought this was a natural extension for Delta. We're excited to be out here at CES. First time an airline ever delivered the keynote that opened CES. And we're pleased to do that this morning. And one of the themes that we had for the conference is how to put the C back into CES, the consumer back into the electronics show. And as part of that, one thing we know is there's stress in travel, uh, particularly in the, in the ground experience, as the airports that we've built, uh, that, that we operate today, were built for a bygone era of travel. And so we're investing billions of dollars in infrastructure, uh, airports everywhere from New York and LaGuardia to LAX to Seattle to, to Atlanta and Salt Lake City. And as we're undertaking these massive infrastructure investments, we want to also embed that with the technology alongside that to make consumer uh, experience that much easier to, to navigate. One of the things that we talk about is the importance of our app. The Fly Delta app is already a top rated travel app and when customers use it we know their their satisfaction scores are up double digit from those that don't use it and now we have an opportunity to create a real digital concierge in your pocket you know we'd love to have one of our famed redcoats walking beside you taking care of your needs it's just not possible but through technology we can i had the, one of the co-founders of lyft with me john zimmer on stage this morning talking about how we're integrating delta and lyft to provide better information whether it's you know, insight as to how long it's going to take to get through a security queue, how long it's going to get to the airport, right. having a lift waiting for you when you when you land and arrive at a yeah. new destination, but all the way through to, you know, why can't you let us, you know, you know, get to the point where we can pick your bags up at home, deliver it to your destination, you travel on us, you don't worry about the baggage overhead, you don't worry right. about the carousel, you don't worry so about checking and, and have it leave there. But all that's going to be in, embedded by having a digital concierge, which we see in the, the Fly Delta app. So, Ed, so, I mean, doing all that, I mean, that sounds great. Uh, there are a lot of apps that, that at least attempt to do uh, some, if not all, of what you said. Apps that have probably spent uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to develop. How much is this going to cost you to build this? And do you think that the return on that investment is going to be worth it? The return is absolutely worth it, and you're right, others have tried it, but no one the scale and the size of Delta has tried it. We're the largest airline in the world. We're the most awarded airline in the world. We have the best people in the world in the airline industry, and there's no task too big for us. So when we say we're going to do it, we have credibility because we are the best performing in reliability and on time and our best baggage scores in the industry. And so by taking the steps that we've had to build the technology, infrastructure, and background to be able to capture the data, for our consumers, that's going to be the, the, the backbone through which we're going to deliver this. Now, it's going to take some time, and we're going to walk before we run. We're not going to overcommit. But the, the focus of my keynote was laying out a vision five years from now, what travel can be five years, and everything from security to baggage to the in-flight, entertainment on board your plane, to what we're doing about sustainability. 
Uh, let's talk about some other big issues uh, that may concern a, a global airline. How concerned are you about the security right now of passengers and employees in light of rising uh, tensions globally, particularly related to Iran? Well, safety and security is our number one uh, objective at all times. Today's today's news, or at any point, and I'm not I'm not concerned at all with respect to the focus that we have in taking people, uh, whether it's the security in the airport or the safety as they travel with Delta. So, you know, certainly I think the uh, the intelligence that we receive, we're we're closely linked with government sources, and we we make changes and and move things around with TSA and customs as necessary. But no, that travel and, and, and the security of travel is not something I'm concerned with. You know, one thing we are watching is fuel prices, which, which have gone up. Right. So uh, talk about just the demand side uh, with regards to uh, air travel in general. Um, we've seen in the most recent earnings report, there appears to be a pretty, uh, I guess, symbiosis going on out there between capacity uh, and the amount of uh, flyers uh, who want to fly. Uh, what's your outlook there? Our outlook is strong. We're going to be recording our, our year-end results next week. I can't give you the can't give you the fourth quarter news quite yet, but we'll we'll tell you next week. All right. But what I can tell you going into the holidays, and the holidays were very strong for us. All right. Uh, and we're strong strong revenue gains uh, this year. This year as a whole, we're up about seven uh, percent. Then we switched gears and got a market outlook ahead of Jobs Day from Joachim Fels, managing director and global economic advisor at Pimco. We started by asking him about his expectations for global growth in the year ahead. Well, I think global growth, as we all know, has slowed a lot over the last two years. Um, last year, 2019, was the year when the U.S. joined in the slowing. So U.S. growth has slowed as well. We think the outlook for this year is that we are seeing some bottoming in global growth first, um, and that seems to be happening as we speak. So some of the near-term leading indicators have started to turn up, like the global PMIs. The interesting thing is this is happening outside of the U.S. first. The U.S. is kind of lagging the global cycle. Uh, the U.S. was lagging on the downside, so it started to slow later than the rest of the world. And I think what we'll see this year is that the U.S. will still be slowing, at least in the first half of the year, uh, while the rest of the world is picking up. And then the U.S. will probably only join in uh, this mild uh, economic recovery in the second half of this year. So the world leads, the U.S. lags. Joachim, you used that word mild, and mild growth has really been uh, the watchword for basically a decade now, whether you're talking about the U.S. or the world. And that has really been a wonderful sort of Goldilocks environment for investors who have found ongoing growth without much threat of tightening from central banks. So is there any reason to think that that sort of a state of nirvana that we've seen for investors is going to change anytime soon? Well, you're right, Joe. I mean, in the last 10 years, we've had a pretty below par, bumpy and brittle recovery, right, or expansion, a triple B expansion, as I called it many mm. years ago. And we've had a triple A liquidity cycle where liquidity was abundant, it was augmenting, it was ample. And that's driven valuations up across asset classes. So you're right, it was a great decade for investors. It was not such a great decade for the economy. Um, what we're seeing now is we'll see the continuation of this bumpy, below par and brittle expansion, but valuations are very full. 
So I don't think we can bank on a continuation of what you've called nirvana for investors, quite mm. the opposite. I think we've now entered a period where it becomes more and more difficult you know, for uh, returns to stay as high as they've been. We're looking for much, much lower returns in the next few years. Our secular outlook for the next three to five years is for more disruption to happen, so more volatility, more shocks to hit. And that means the next five years for investors will be very, very different from the last five to ten years. So, Jakob, a lot of folks are kind of talking about uh, some degree of reflation this year and some of the rally that we've seen uh, not only in equities but also in the Treasury market seems to be tied to this idea that we could finally see a tick up in inflation expectations. Do you anticipate that sort of tick up in inflation expectations? And if so, what's the outcome? Yeah, I think it has started to happen, right? Inflation expectations have come a little bit up from their from their lows in the last few months. So you're starting to see a whiff of higher inflation expectations. We expect to see more of this this year. Um, I mean, make no mistake, we are still at very low levels and we do not expect runaway inflation. But I think there are a lot more upside risks to inflation than there are downside risks. Right? The upside risks come from the fact that globally fiscal policy is becoming more expansionary. Fiscal is much more, has a much more direct impact on demand uh, than monetary. Um, so that's one upside risk. The other upside risk is if these tensions in the Middle East continue, you may see more upside for oil. Um, and that, via the impact it has on headline inflation, could then also start to affect inflation expectations and core inflation. Um, and finally, and maybe most importantly, central banks around the world want higher inflation. Right. Uh, the Fed, as you know, is engaged in its strategy review. They are likely to shift to some kind of make-up strategies where they will try to compensate for inflation undershoots by allowing inflation to overshoot in the future. So I think what you'll see is if and when inflation expectations start to rise, central banks will not stem against this. So the reaction function has changed, and that's why we think it makes sense to buy some insurance against higher inflation, mm. either in the form of tips or by banking on a steepening of the yield curve. Mm. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of there, and it's something a lot of economists are talking about, which is this sort of monetary to fiscal handoff, this idea that, okay, there's not a whole lot of juice in monetary policy, and that maybe, maybe it never had a whole lot of juice to begin with, and that fiscal policy is more direct. Nonetheless, fiscal policy requires political action and political leaders to actually do something. Do you believe that that will happen, or is that always going to sort of be next year's story, where we keep thinking that eventually we'll see the fiscal, uh, the fiscal brigades come in, but in the end it sort of disappoints and we end up still relying mostly on central banks? Well, Joe, I think fiscal policy will become more active. It will become more expansionary over time. But as you've indicated, usually when something bad happens, we've relied on central banks as the first responders. And the simple reason is they can react much faster. It's much easier to decide to cut rates or expand the balance sheet. Uh, all you have to have is a, is a committee meeting. Whereas fiscal policy, you know, you need to go through Congress or in other countries through parliaments. That takes a while. So I do think that if and when the next crisis comes or the next recession comes, fiscal policy will respond. But the stimulus is only likely to arrive later, right? So uh, there is a time lag. And so we should not bank on fiscal to help us prevent a recession. 
It may help us to get out of it. Mm. Um, but again, uh, there are time lags involved. And the problem we see is that the typical first responder, central banks, have do not have much ammunition left. Actually, they used up some of that ammunition last year, I think rightly so, but the price to pay for easing last year in order to extend the expansion is that if and when that next recession hits, they will have less ammunition, they will have less bullet points uh, and less basis points to spend. Can you talk to us uh, very quickly about the FX market and kind of what your expectations are? Yeah, I think this is the year where the dollar starts to weaken, not aggressively. U.S. is lagging behind in the cycle. So the way we like to play this, uh, we like to be long in basket of high-yielding emerging market currencies. I think that's where you see the dollar weakening first. And secondly, we like the yen in G10 space. The yen also has good risk-off characteristics. If something unexpected, something bad happens, the yen usually rallies. So that's our favorite way to express a view on a somewhat weaker dollar this year. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.